BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. On your list of New Year's resolutions, have you resolved to make better use of your time, to be more productive, to schedule your day so not a moment is wasted? Before you commit to that resolution, you may want to listen to the new Atlantic Magazine podcast, How to Keep Time, which argues we should try to reclaim our relationship with time and even get comfortable with wasting it. That's coming up in exactly five minutes and 30 seconds after this news. Welcome to Forum and Happy New Year. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. In your life, you probably know people who seem to get to be great at managing their time. They're efficient. They show up to appointments on the dot. There is not a moment in the day that is not accounted for. And then there's the rest of us. Our relationship with time is a tricky one. Sometimes it feels like there's not enough time. If only you had an extra hour, day, or year. And then there are moments when it feels like the clock is frozen and time has stopped. When my children were little, I often thought that the days were going by at a glacial pace, but the years were whizzing by at light speed. We all have a finite amount of time. How does knowing that affect the decisions we make about using time? We're joined by the co-hosts of a new Atlantic podcast, How to Keep Time, which explores all that in the core question. We're joined by Becca Rashid, a producer for The Atlantic. Hi, Becca. Hi, Grace. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. And Ian Bogost, he's a contributing editor for The Atlantic and a professor of arts and sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hi, Ian. Hey, Grace. Welcome to Forum, to the both of you. And I wanted to start with you, Becca. What is your relationship to time like? Are you someone who's mindful of the clock? I would like to say that that's an easy answer, but I think there's a part of me that would answer this in favor of my work and getting things done on time. And I would hope that I'm good at that as a producer and, you know, all the clocks that we need to keep up with with every deadline. But 
I don't think I'm as good about managing time as it relates to my life or the sort of five-year and 10-year plans that I have in my mind and whether or not those are coming to fruition. So there's sort of two time struggles I deal with, with day-to-day and sort of over the course of decades or sort of the longer-term plans. Yeah, that, that is a tough one. And Ian, what about you? I'm assuming you're a great juggler of time because you write for The Atlantic, prolifically so, <laughs> and you're a college professor and you have a family. Are you good at managing time and thinking about time? It does, it does look that way for all the reasons you mentioned, uh, but I don't feel good at it uh, at all. Um, I, I, and, you know, j- juggling, juggling involves dropping things, too. So, you know, the, the juggling metaphor, I think, is right, uh, but I'm just not a very good juggler of all those activities. And, and you know, most of us, I don't think, feel that way. We, we, we feel like, wow, there's so much to do. I can't get it all done. I've got all these balls in the air. Maybe we even put it that way when we talk about our lives. Mm-hmm. So what's on the what's fallen on the floor, Ian? I mean, it it varies <laughs> every every week, you know. And um, and my life, like like many people's, shifts uh, over time. Like you know, there there may be some days when I'm working on a story for the Atlantic, and that's where the the majority of my time is directed. Other days I have to teach. Uh, some days I got to go, you know, pick up my daughter from from swim late or or, or make dinner. <clears throat> and so all of the activities that fall into my life and fall out of it again. Um, it's like waves of them, but I never know what's going what's gonna to wash up uh, exactly. And so I have a routine uh, to some extent, and I follow that routine, um, but it feels like it's always shifting gears on me, changing things up. So now I have to keep up with some new version uh, of the routine in order to, to keep on top of my time. It's it, it just when I started listening to your podcast, I thought of this um, soap opera, which begins, you know, like sands in the hourglass. These are the days of our lives. And that's kind of what you guys are examining, how we are dealing with time on a day to day basis. And Becca, I thought it was kind of fascinating that essentially the first episode of the podcast is about wasting time. Mm. Are you comfortable with wasting time or is that thought of of not using your time productively like does it make your skin crawl? <laughs> it not only makes my skin crawl, I'm so conditioned to think of every moment not being used productively as wasted time. So we start that episode with sort of my daily routine, my morning commute. If I'm not reading something on my phone or, you know, getting in touch with my family, staying on top of something, it feels like that is just an hour of the day wasted. And a lot of what Oliver Berkman talks about in that episode is we're so conditioned to sort of instrumentalize every moment and every minute of the day in that way, that free time or time that might be going to just you know, reading a book or doing something that doesn't have a future focused reward feels like a waste when thinking about it that way is sort of the key problem we all have. Well, you mentioned Oliver Berkman, and this is a a thinker and a writer who was deep into the world of being productive and Mm -hmm. had a a column in The Guardian about it. And then he had an epiphany about all that productivity and the hacking time and things that he was doing. What did he discover? So... I'm sure we've all gone through phases where we're trying to use the Pomodoro technique or, you know, set a million alarms on our phone to make sure that we're, you know, getting to all of the tasks that Ian says. I would also argue Ian can juggle tasks much better than he's letting on. (laughs) Um, But his epiphany was basically that at the end of the day, none of these time management hacks were really getting him to this feeling of 
getting on top of everything, getting mm-hmm. to check off on every box on the to-do list. And ultimately that might that desire to get on top of time might be coming from this fantasy that we can be limitless in a way, that we don't have to make tough decisions about what we choose to spend our time on. Because with every choice we make on what to spend our time on, we are foregoing something else we could have been doing, right? So sort of that trade-off in what we decide to do with our time is inevitable. There's no way that there's one thing that you would do without giving up something else. So when he realized that there is no sort of limitless place that you could get to where you're always on top of time, you've controlled the day, you've managed every minute of the day, he sort of gave it all up. And the epiphany was that, you know, the time is withering away whether or not we want to admit it. And that sounds bleak. And a lot of what Ian and I (laughs) explore Mm -hmm. on the podcast Mm -hmm. is managing that sort of sense of existential dread that comes from realizing that. But that was the epiphany he came to. So you can't control time. I mean, if time is our most precious commodity, Ian, uh, shouldn't we be averse to wasting it? When you think about it, though, you can't really waste your time. It's uh, it's not like food. You know, like if you, we just had the holidays, right? And, you know, we made a bunch of food at home and we didn't eat it all. And we put some of it in the fridge and uh, inevitably we threw some of it away because nobody wanted to go back to it. And I remember as a kid, you know, if I had my grandmother, you know, it was very averse to that. And you're wasting food. Don't do that. Someone might have consumed it. It might have gone to some purpose and some reason it wasn't. And that's why it was wasted. But with time, with your time, you can never really waste it. You are always there in time, in your body and mind, and things are happening to you and around you. And so when we talk about wasting time, what we're really talking about is that, that forward-looking, future-looking desire, that, that uh, the sense of wasting time comes from not yearning to use our time in a way that gets us somewhere uh, we're not, that gets us to the next promotion or even just to the end of the day so that we can go to sleep and do it all, all over again, whether it's a short or a long time frame. We're always looking forward when we think about wasting time. But the, the moment you give that up, that I, it's very hard to give up and realize, well, here I am. The time is going to pass. The same amount of it will pass for me no matter what I do. Then you have new choices. And you can choose to try to experience that, that nowness in a way that you might not be familiar with and that you might be missing out on. Well, Oliver Berkman talks about the average person having you know, approximately 4,000 weeks of time, which when I read that and heard that, I was a little startled and kind of depressed. Yeah. Um, so, Ian, when, when you think about that, you know, having only mm-hmm. 4,000 weeks of time, what does that make you do? Does that make yeah. you feel more productive, less productive? I think the, 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 the key to this innovation in, in, on Oliver Berkman's um, book, which is called 4,000 Weeks, right, is that it's like a defamiliarization tactic. So you're used to thinking about your time on Earth, your finite time on Earth, maybe in terms of years, like maybe I'll live to 77 or whatever the average age is, or maybe longer to 85 or something like that. And I know what my age is now and where I am on that path. And that's sort of our normal and ordinary sense of it. But if you think about a week, which is, you know, which just fly by, right? We just had one. We're going to have, and we're already in the middle almost of of a new week or the first week of 2024, and it's almost half over. We didn't even notice. (laughs) So 4,000 weeks feels like a very small number of these very easily spent uh, units uh, of time. So it's it's really the the idea of like defamiliarizing you from time. It's the same amount of time 
as you were going to have when you lived 70 or 80 years, right? But you're now forced to look at it in a different way. So at first, I was very frightened and quite shocked in the same way that I think many readers of his book were like, wow, that's that's it. I just I just burned up a week <laughs> doing absolutely nothing. And I now I only have however many of them left. But but if you if you recognize, well, you know, that means that they are burning up, right? And so now I have to start thinking more deliberately about what it is I'm doing with each of those weeks. And I think the week is also really like an interesting unit of time. It's not like, well, someday, you know, I'm gonna get the job I really want or have the partner I really want or the family or what you know, the house, whatever it is, those sort of long term goals. It's like there's only so much you can get done in a week, which breaks down into a day, which breaks back down into an hour. And I think one of the things Berkman's trying to do is to get us to look at those weeks and days and hours in a new way to see value in just being in them, not necessarily in using them to write more emails or whatever it is we think is valuable as a stepping stone to the next great thing. I think that leads into what you titled the podcast, which is Keeping Time. And Mm -hmm. Becca and uh, you guys talk about keeping yourself in time. What do you mean by that? We use this metaphor on the podcast to sort of remind ourselves what staying in time is like. If you've heard a metronome in music, it sort of keeps the rhythm of a song. And we hope that staying in time or being in time starts to feel a bit more like that rather than trying to get on top of it or let's say rush to the next appointment or um, you know be overly mindful in a way that you have to settle yourself and say let me be mindful in this moment which is often what I do when I realize I'm rushing so I think being in time is what that means to us and to what Ian was just saying It reminds me of this concept of the social clock by Bernice Newgarten from the 1960s um, about how we have all these different ways we measure time in our lives. Well, we're talking about time and how we can rethink what time means with the two co-hosts of a new Atlantic podcast, Keeping in Time. We're joined by Becca Rashid, a producer with The Atlantic, and Ian Bogost, a contributing writer with The Atlantic and a professor in arts and sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. After the break, we're going to take your questions and comments. When you when have you been acutely aware of the passage of time? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You're listening to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in for Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. We all have a finite amount of time. How does knowing that affect the decisions we make about using time? Is it okay to waste it? Why do some people seem perpetually busy and others seem to make time for work, life, and play? To answer those questions, we're joined by the co-hosts of a new Atlantic podcast, How to Keep Time. Ian Bogost is a contributing writer with The Atlantic and a professor in arts and sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. And Becca Rashid is a producer with The Atlantic. And we'd love to hear from you. How are you spending your time? When have you been acutely aware of the passage of time? And does that happen during certain parts of your days, moments in your life? Was time going by too fast or too slow? And how do you keep track of time? Are you scheduled down to the last minute, or have you ditched all forms of schedule keeping? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or drop us an email or question at forum at kqed.org. And you can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. So, Ian, in the podcast, you examine this desire to control time, to get a handle on it. Is that desire kind of rooted in human nature or is it cultural? Well, it's it's both. Um, the, the, the thing about finitude, like the idea that, that you have an end uh, and that you are mortal, uh, that's, that's just part of being human, right? And so the sense that you will eventually stop existing and therefore your days are numbered... That, that's something all of us experience now, how we react, how we respond uh, to that realization, that knowledge. Um, that's very, very much cultural. So in America, uh, for example, we really prioritize uh, our work lives. And one of the ways that we find meaning in the limited time that we have, for good and for ill, uh, is through professional professional life, uh, you know, having a certain position, being a certain kind of person, hopefully hopefully helping people are getting something important done in the world uh, as a result. And out of that come a whole host of time management and sort of cultural value related ideas, work-life balance, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. So it's sort of like a layered problem to try to find meaning in time. On the one hand, we're all humans and so we're mortal and limited, uh, but then our, dif- our different cultural circumstances very much impact um, the way that we handle that. Well, I wanted to talk about this concept that you bring up, which is busyness. And mm-hmm. Becca, you or you encountered a friend who missed a party because they were too busy. They had to go to Crate and Barrel, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, and setting aside whether that is an Emily Post appropriate reason to miss a party, what struck you about this person's availability, their busyness? Yeah, I mean, that example is so relatable. I've had so many appointments of my own or sort of friend dates canceled last minute because someone had to run to Home Depot or Target or Mm -hmm. whatever it may be. And I sort of had to accept the fact that I was secondary to their scheduled whatever it may be. Um, But in this episode, why it was so interesting to realize that busyness is not just something that happens or something that we do to sort of fill up our day-to-day to-do list, it actually can be leveraged as a status symbol, sort of knowingly or unknowingly, you know, think about your friend who you can never pin down for dinner. Mm -hmm. You know, you assume that that friend has a burgeoning social life. You know, they have a lot of professional commitments. Maybe they're busy with family. They're juggling a bunch of things. You know, that person inevitably just has a certain level of availability or lack thereof that 
makes us perceive them as more important or, you know, more socially valued. And that was so interesting that in an American context, the less available someone is, the more we assume that they're valuable and that they are, you know, their time is so scarce that to get one hour of their time for dinner or coffee is, you know, because it's so highly valued and it's so hard to pin them down, they must be really important and hence must have a more important role in society or in our social circle. But that's not how it is in every country around the world. So, you know, in Italy, there is a different sense of social status where actually if you're more occupied or you're working longer hours, there's an assumption that you're having to put more hours towards labor, hence you have less free time. And people actually have a lesser social value on that. It's almost like a, oh, I feel so bad for you that you have to work more. Whereas here, if you have to work more, you're probably a more important person. You know, you have more responsibilities. And hence, in our American, you know, capitalistic, work-centric society, you must be more valued. And hence, you know, your time is scarce and you are a more valuable asset in our social circle. I mean, I certainly have encountered the humble brag of people saying, I'm just so busy. I'm oh, yeah. so busy. And then uh, you you ask them what they've been doing and you're like, that doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, Ian, I wanted to ask you about that. You mean you spoke to a marketing professor who defines time as a luxury good. And mm-hmm. as Becca said, it's a social asset. Is that something that's new to this century or have we always been like that? Yeah, we talked to uh, uh, an Arizona State University marketing professor named Nero Paharia. And one of the things she told us is, as you mentioned, you know, that the time became a, a kind of luxury good, like a symbolic uh, luxury good. And that is that is a somewhat new uh, idea. You know, it used to be that um, even, even 100, 120 years ago in sort of the, you know, Gilded Age uh, America, you, you would generate wealth um, uh, through work. Um, but then when you had time and resources to spend, you would do so and throw all these sort of Gilded Age parties or whatever, all the things that people did to waste their their time and money when they had a lot of it. Um, but then over time, um, the wealthy and powerful um, became more symbolically attached to the idea of busyness and what where their value lied is not necessarily in generating a lot of capital, although they might also do that, um, but in but in seeming important by virtue of being in demand, and you know if you if you work uh, at any workplace or you you know you live in kind of any any corner of culture in America right now, that that has sort of become uh, uh, normal. Uh, that the more that you work, you are now seen as uh, more in demand, and therefore your time is more valuable, has greater not just use value but sort of sort of symbolic value. And you see this when um, when you're in a position of authority and people approach you, they say, oh, I know you're really busy. Like, I don't mean to, I don't mean to bother <laughs> you. I don't mean to impinge on your extremely valuable time. And that time may not be, you may not be using it for anything worthwhile. It just seems that you are to others um, because you're being called on for many things or you're difficult to pin down. Um, and there's a sense that like seeking out that kind of a, you know, a subject position in your work life or even in your in your home or your community life makes you seem more valuable, which is, isn't to say that people do it deliberately, but it's kind of become ingrained in our culture. And so you're driven toward that sort of sense of um, of seeming busy. And then you say it like like you, like you said, Grace, like, it's like, how are you? Oh, I'm oh, so busy, you know, <laughs> um, which is a terrible 
a terrible thing to say because it indicates to your interlocutor that you you perceive that your time is so valuable that you're not even willing to kind of talk to someone else about <laughs> about how they might um, relate to you in some different in some different way. People don't mean to do it, I think, but it's it's become a sort of tick that only signals how pervasive that value of busyness and having every moment filled has become. I think most people don't mean to do it. I think there are some people who like to do it. And, you know, there's this idea that I'm super busy with work, but there's also I'm super busy with social engagements, Mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, Mm -hmm. it comes a little bit with FOMO, I think. I mean, here's something, a party I'm going to or an event that I'm attending. My Instagram feed is filled with busy, busy, busy socialness. Mm -hmm. Um, And how does that make you feel, Becca, when somebody approaches you and says, I'm just, I'm really busy. I have, and it's not just work. It's my exciting, fun life. (laughs) I think going off of what Ian said, I mean, it sometimes creates a barrier between people and actually understanding how someone else is doing. If someone's response to how are you is I'm busy with my social life or my crate and barrel appointments or what have you, it can make it hard to actually get a sense of how the person is doing or perhaps for you as a friend or whatever relationship you have with the person to get an understanding of where they're at in life, you know, it's it's sort of this strange cultural barrier we put between one another to feel like I have more social engagements than you, my time is limited, and I'm kind of unavailable both emotionally and literally with my time. Well, a listener writes, long ago, I came up with the concept Am I a human being or a human doing? Is it better to be doing something towards some advanced goal or to experience the current time I'm in? I mean, Ian, is being busy Mm -hmm. a way to fend off the existential dread that time is slipping away? Is it a cop out from being? Oh, sure. It definitely is. And and I think we know it and we're, we're, we're concerned about it. We kind of don't know what to do about it. So when you find yourself saying or hearing someone say, I'm really busy. You know, they're they're panicking. Um, it's like a signal that they don't know why they're doing the things they do. They're, they're doing, or they might not know why. They know what they're doing. I have to send all these emails. I have to get this report done. I have to go, you know, to the event that I promised. I have to to pick up my kids. I have to cook dinner. I have all these things that I have to do. What they mean, why I'm pursuing them instead of something else, what their value is to me or to society at large. Those questions can go unanswered when you just kind of bundle it up in this sense of general busyness, which of course has enough cultural, you know, cultural meaning, shared cultural value, that people will just kind of, kind of nod. Um, and then you get to the end of the day, and you know, if you stop yourself and you look back at it and you say, "What did I accomplish, and why?" Um, whether it's in relation to your goals or just in the sense of kind of being, being in your in your head and body and life and community and family and all of those things, you may think, "Well, I don't like the way." Uh, that I that I spent that time, even though it was even though it was full, but it's still difficult to make those changes because there's just so much to do. How do you start? How do you even begin to kind of unravel the spaces where you would find time to just be in time? That's really a challenge, especially in America. Well, Tara writes, often on Mondays, I'm presented with the question, what did you do this weekend? The question implies a cultural implication that I must have done something, whether it be an accomplishment or a unique experience. I think we've all received that question when we come into work or see friends on a Monday. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm amazed that people can even remember what they did on the weekend. (laughs) Sometimes I I can't even think about it. Um, But Becca, how do you handle that when people are constantly reaffirming this idea that a 
an experience, a thing to do, that is of value. How do you combat that? Right. I think that's exactly the the challenge of pushing back on that sort of shared sentiment that all of us must have been super busy this weekend with the Home Depot appointments, with having to do everything we need to. And I think the challenge is in actually allowing ourselves to have that free space or that empty time to actually sit with our thoughts. I mean, I have so many friends who say, I love that I'm so busy all the time or overworked in a way because then I don't have to be alone with my thoughts. That is sort mm-hmm. of the the relief that comes in being constantly occupied with the to-do list. It's There is no free moment to have to worry about even being mindful, right? You can yeah. sort of skip from task to task to task. So I, I wish yeah. I had a clear answer on how to manage that. Ian and I, through making this podcast, had one weekend where we said, let's not make any plans this weekend and just see how we feel. And we did it. I, Ian, I don't know about you, but I was mm-hmm. not particularly good at it. And still those feelings of, you know, uh, FOMO, as you said, fear of missing out that others were making plans or was I being too, you know, sloth-like or just lazy, all of these sort of self-imposed ideas we have of also taking that free time to sit with ourselves to identify what we're actually feeling about what we're doing. These things are so much easier said than done. But when you do carve out two full days of the weekend, let's say, to do that, it's it's not easy to just lean into that mindset because mm-hmm. we're so conditioned to behave in exactly the opposite way. Well, yeah, and, and, oh, go ahead, Ian. I was just going to say there there is a terror in it. Um, mm-hmm. This the, the that when you don't fill your time with some activity, whatever it is, then you're left to you know just kind of be alone with the world and your thoughts uh, within it. And it's so easy to find something to do, even if it's just picking up your phone and mm-hmm. scrolling through social media, that we've gotten out of the habit of of feeling that sense of of terror. Even even the the fact that I'm describing it as a sense of terror it doesn't need to be that way, but it's become such because it's so easy to find just something to do, something new to see that that protects us from having to feel like, okay, well, here I am. What does that mean? What do I make of things? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think you read a lot about technology, Ian. And, mm-hmm. you know, before we had these phones in our hands, I mean, there were these moments where there was nothing to do but actually think about what was what's <laughs> happening around you. I mean, I kind of missed the dentist's office, you know, filled with people magazines. Um, so I could just I guess I was sitting there mindlessly reading gossip. But, you know, those moments when there's nothing to do to distract you. Has technology robbed us of a sense of time? Well, it's it's it cuts both ways. Uh, technology has definitely made it easier for us not to be in time in the way that you're describing. So the moment I start to feel like ah, I'm bored, I don't, there's nothing to do, I don't really feel comfortable, then I can find something new to look at. It might be a new article in the Atlantic. It could just be a new post on on Instagram. It may not even be anything at all. Just the fact that I can touch my phone and you know move apps around. That's something novel. Uh, to do. So in that sense, yes, it's it's robbed us of the experience of being uh, alone with our thoughts, which then allows us to think about what to do next or what just happened to us. But at the same time, I remember those those times at the dentist's office or whatever, and they weren't great. It was it was boring. There wasn't there wasn't much to do. I remember sitting, you know, at work or or waiting for you know waiting for a plane, um, waiting on a plane. There was nothing to do. And uh, that wasn't a sense of like existential despair 
that arose, but it was this sort of different sense of anguish in the extent of time and in it kind of moving out in front of you. We weren't necessarily making good use of it that way either. So I think we need to be careful not to to look at technology and say, oh, everything was grand, you know, 20 years ago before we had smartphones all the time, and we need to go back. It's rather that there's a push and pull on the way that we experience and, and, and think about time as a result of having infinite media and opportunities available in our pockets and purses. I mean, I do think that the phone with all its apps, I mean, I have like six task apps on my phone. (laughs) I mean, I think if, you know, you think time is precious and you multitask, is that a good way to understand time? I mean, obviously asking for a friend, Ian. (laughs) Well, you know, we are much more oriented to task management than, than we once were. Um, even back in like the the Stephen Covey, you know, Franklin Covey planner days before smartphones, when you you know like plan out your 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 activities for the day, um, that was a somewhat fringe uh, activity to take part in. And now everybody, it seems, is is kind of task managing, having in these lists, these checkboxes, and software is certainly it's oriented us toward the structure of using time in a way that we didn't always have. Even even if you could always write down on a piece of scratch paper, here's the things that I need to do today. There's a kind of rationalism mm. to our technological lives. And we have this idea that it will let us control them. It'll let us get a handle on them. I'll finally be able to, to, you know, to make good use of my time. Um, but really, it's just another way of doing an activity in time. And it may take up more time than it saves. Right. Well, Radsky writes, I work very hard at leaving myself chunks of time with no plans at all. It's not easy in America. When people see you doing nothing productive, they start to judge you or where you are in life. I also tell people I'm busy when I'm not so I can avoid being asked to do things I don't want to do. I I relate to that. As we all know, everything is constantly calling for our time. We're talking about time, what it means, what our relationship to time is. And we're joined by the co-hosts of a new Atlantic podcast, How to Keep Time. Becca Rashid is a producer with The Atlantic, and Ian Bogost is a contributing writer to The Atlantic and a professor in arts and sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. And we want to hear from you. What's your take on wasting time? Does that sound idyllic or something to be criticized? And have you tried a productivity hack to make the most of your time? Email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org or give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We're going to get to your calls, your questions, everything you want to talk about and know about time coming up right after the break. This is Forum. I'm Grace Wan in for Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in for Mina Kim, and that was Cher trying to turn back time. We're talking about time, our relationship with it, what it means to keep track of time, to lose track of time. And we're joined by the two co-hosts of a new Atlantic podcast, How to Keep Time. Ian Bogost is a contributing writer for The Atlantic and a professor in arts and sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. And Becca Rashid is a producer with The Atlantic. And I wanted to go to the phones. Um, Amy from Richmond, welcome to Forum. Tell us what your relationship with time is like. Hi, Amy. Well, thanks. Hi, thanks, first of all, for calling, um, for an- answering, letting me be on the show. I appreciate it. Um, I was thinking about the number of heartbeats as a measurement of time. You know how at certain stages in life they say, oh, if you hit 25,000 days, you do the math on that, that's 68.4 years. And if you think of the demographic of the baby boomer cliff that we're all facing, some of us, I will just say, oftentimes I thought of life as the number of heartbeats. Mm-hmm. And then in, t- in time relativity, does it speed up if, say, for example, one has a stroke and you have AFib and suddenly you're beating more than you thought? I'm a very athletic person. I've been very... Uh, keenly physically uh, in shape all my life I did have a stroke and I am thinking about okay now they they've said that I have AFib does that then shorten my life necessarily and those sorts of questions about how long is one's life is it determined ahead of time and I know that's the existential crisis we're talking about but if it were ever a solid number you know does do certain incidences make Mm -hmm. it shorter because life up. That's such an interesting question. And Ian, I think it goes to how we measure time. And we talked earlier about how we use, we could use weeks, um, but you could use months, days, seconds, heartbeats, as Amy was saying, is how we, the, the way we measure time, is that relevant to how we experience it? Yeah, it definitely seems to be. So, um, you know, I don't know how many heartbeats one has, in a life, but it has to be a lot of them, right? Billions or billions of them, I assume. Mm. And that's a difficult number to count. Um, But if you think about, Becca mentioned earlier, that one of the ways that we've been interpreting this how to keep time idea is sort of as a rhythm, you know, like the rhythm of music, like a a metronomic counting, like you're in Mm -hmm. time and it's happening. The the heartbeat is definitely a useful way. I think it's, it's, you know, there it is. You can put your hand on your body and, and feel yourself being in time at any moment. And that might be you know, an interesting exercise, a way of uh, of marking the passage of time in a way that you could feel momentarily rather than what's a year, what's a month, what's a week. Mm. Well, let's go back to the phones. Um, Phil from Burlingame, welcome to Forum, and tell us about your relationship to time. Hi, um, great show. Um, so what I would like to talk about is you're talking about time as though it's... Um, um, 
thing that a person manages internally. But externally, there are two things. First off, Zimbardo and Boyd talked about time and that we all have future time perspectives or past. So conscientious people are always in a rush. My wife is always in a rush. And, you know, that part I get. But the other part is 60 or 70 percent of Americans are check to check. And, you know, you know, what did everybody listening to the show have to do this morning and their kids and, you know, that the economy is heated up. It used to be, you know, one income earner and somebody would take care of the house. And now everybody's working and trying to deal with it. So um, isn't this kind of a privileged conversation to talk about in the way that we have been? That's such a good question, uh, Phil. And that's something, Becca, that you address in the podcast where, you know, as Phil says, not everybody can control their time, especially mm-hmm. their work time um, and their lifetime. So if you're if you're in that situation where, you know, your time is pretty much set by somebody else, your employer or your obligations to family or whatnot, how do you reclaim any time for yourself? And I think that's exactly the the challenge, right, that everyone's trade-offs as they relate to time are different for people who are working multiple jobs or have, you know, children at home that they're having to sacrifice time with to be going to work. I mean, those trade-offs are not easy. And I think the one universal quality about time is that the one hour that goes towards one obligation is an hour being sacrificed towards something else. So certainly I can see where there are the privileged among us who have more leisure time where they can spend time with their family or hours away from labor or freedom with their labor where those hours are more flexible. So the one universal trait I would say in thinking about how to reclaim time is just to be more aware of where those trade-offs or maybe that room is for you to, whether it's free time you're looking for or more time with family or friends or time with yourself, is doing that first step of identifying where those pockets even exist for you. Or if there are ways, we had um, an expert in our episode about taking lunch breaks at work and if that is a time to spend time with a coworker and and get to know a a friend better in that circumstance, Um, where sort of the opportunities where multiple needs can be addressed in one chunk of time rather than often what many of us are pressured to do because of work is to compartmentalize time into work, play, family, you know, and that's what makes it feel like there truly is not enough hours in the day. Well, Ian, you said that in America, the purpose of work is to be at work, not to do work. (laughs) And I think every manager listening to that just had a cardiac infarction. Um, But what do you mean? I mean, you say that work is cosplay. Yeah, it's it's like you're at work when what you get done at work is less important than the time that you spend being there in the trappings of, of your work life. Um, think about all the time white collar workers spend just managing documents, email, meeting requests, all of that kind of stuff. Is that productive time? Are you getting something meaningful done in the context of your organization or your personal life? Or are you just kind of pushing papers, as we as we sometimes say? And you know, it's 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 both, but the reason that it works as an kind of office mentality is that everyone Everyone does it. And so long as you don't talk too much about it, 
you could get through your whole life, your whole work life, your whole career, just kind of moving, moving papers around, looking busy, like we talked about. And and you would be praised for it. It wouldn't be shameful. It's like, you know, there you are, doing you clocked in, you were there at your desk, you were answering the phones or sending the emails, you know, getting the PowerPoints done, whatever it is that you do. It was all happening. But you were kind of on autopilot during the whole process. You didn't stop to evaluate what it meant or how you related uh, to that activity that you're that you're partaking of. And and certainly the 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 relationship with the workplace and with work and the time we spend at and and in mid work during the the COVID nineteen pandemic, it, it gave us a new perspective on and all of like the discourse about back to the office, you know, remote work, hybrid work, all of that stuff. When you think about it, is it's really a debate about time and the use of time rather than about work and what it means to to be there. Like for example, if you don't have to commute to your job, then that's now time that you can use. Uh, differently, or if you're at home or in a hybrid kind of arrangement, and you want to do your laundry during the day, or, or you know, take a jog or whatever, that's something that uh, the that workplace life um, made um, more difficult. But just just being at your job makes it structured, uh, makes your day structured in a way that's harder to to kind of find those little pockets. So it, you know, the, the idea that that Becca mentioned, that one of our experts talked about with this, is like you've got to steal that time back. You've got to find it's not going to happen automatically, and so even finding ten minutes, an hour, or a couple times during your day at work where you're going to read a book or you know just kind of kind of stare out the window and think about something other than what you were doing in order that you can move on to some new set of thoughts. Um, those are simple activities, but they're ones that you still have to partake. You have to you have to you know kind of facilitate yourself. No one's going to do it for you. Instead, more and more emails are going to pile up. Mm, so definitely take the lunch break, I think, is what I hear you say. <laughs> yeah, which is hard. It's hard yeah. to do. I mean, I, I ate lunch at my desk today before joining you on, on the show. I'm a couple hours ahead. And I was so ironic. You know, like, I'm still doing these bad habits. <laughs> but this is the structure that we live in. It is not easy to change to change those habits. Um, and you need, like, support in, in, in doing so. It can't just come from the self. There has to be a sort of communal cultural shift that, that happens. And in the workplace, that is possible, but it's still difficult, certainly at, on, on a social, on the level of the social fabric, you know, in America as a whole, it's much harder. Well, you know, you've, interestingly, you quote the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it says that on average, America's have Americans have more than five hours of leisure time per day, which I read that and I thought, well, define leisure time because I can't even understand that because so many people do. They, they work, they have jobs that don't have flexibility, you know, they're mm-hmm. showing up at the warehouse or, you know, the cashier desk or whatever, whatnot. And I, I'm trying to understand how we have five hours of time, Becca. It sounds like so much more than most of us feel like we have. And part of it may be because of switching costs, which is this concept that we came across in the podcast about how it takes time for us to sort of move from task to task. So let's say you just got off your long shift at the warehouse to actually sit down and get home and pull your book out and find the state of mental focus to get into it. That may take up more than two hours or, you know, it it might take a lot longer than we think. It's not easy to move from being in productive mode and moving into leisure mode. So that, I think, explains part of why those five hours a day that all of us have is not 
used in the sort of restful, recuperative way that we expect that moving through the work days would feel like. So I, I'm not sure if that that maybe explains it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm still looking for it. What about you, Ian, who ate his lunch at his desk? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it it isn't. I think it's a it, it's a helpful but misle- It's it's a clarifying but misleading number, because w- what it means to have five hours of, of of leisure time, it's like that. Where does that come from? You know, there, there was this uh, this kind of viral TikTok we aired part of uh, on the show with this this young woman who was saying, like, when do I have time to live? You know, like, I, I go to my job, and I, you know, I have a reasonable number of hours I put in, but I have to commute, and it takes an hour. To, and like, how do I find time to eat or to date or to do, do my dishes, do anything in my, in my life? And, you know, does that count as our leisure time when you're on the train or in your car going going to and from work? In, in some, by some measures, it, it does, unfortunately. And so, you know, the amount of time that we have where we're not working and we're not sleeping... We can't necessarily it's we can't necessarily put it to use in the ways that we might like, but then you look at these statistics and you see that in in other countries, um, Nordic countries, for example, that have much better work life balance than Americans do, they're not working that much less than than we are in a technical sense, right? You know, it's like I can't remember how many how many hours a week it is thirty eight forty two something on parity with what you'd consider a full work week, but for all sorts of fa- of reasons. It's easier to make use of that time when you're not working. Even just the the density mm. of European cities and you know, how far do you have to go to get from place right. to place or to grab your lunch or to you know pick up pick up dinner, to go to the laundromat, whatever it is that you have to do. That's very different, uh, you know, geographically and from a built environment uh, perspective. Mm. So there's just lots of factors. Once you start mm. touching time, you see that it, you know, it it meet, everything else kind of comes along with it too. Well, you're listening to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. Let's go back to the phones. Dan from San Jose, tell us about how you use your time. Hi, this is this is Dan. Thanks for taking my call. I just had a quick observation. Um, I did not realize how sucked into this whole you must fill every minute uh, mentality we get. And where even at home, I'm doing nothing. I must jump on Yahoo and see what's happening in the world and wherever. Um, and we just recently adopted a kitten who just absolutely refuses to not be paid attention to. And it's just broken me into this, you know, (laughs) mode of sitting down. I must pet this kitty. She gives you instant Mm -hmm. feedback of purring. I try to get on the computer and she'll walk all over the keyboard, whatever, and say, no, pay attention to me. And and it's just been unbelievably relaxing. I did not realize how wound up I get just keeping this schedule full every second of the day. But anyway, it was just an interesting thing that I that I was shocked with in the last couple of weeks, um, seeing that this relaxing or sort of downtime really is important, and it's just been wonderful. So that's it, and thank oh. you for taking the call. Dan, I think you've hit upon an answer, which is get a cat. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like a pretty wonderful way to spend your time. Well, we have a couple more comments coming in. Uh, Geek-tastic on Discord writes, This episode is resonating. I spent every day I had off over the holidays doing as little as possible, and it was glorious. Mm-hmm. And Julia writes, I always have to be moving, doing, and keeping busy. I wake up, exercise, and then if I'm not going off to work, I'm cleaning or organizing, doing, doing, doing. I find it very difficult to relax or do nothing. Am I wasting my time? Is Julia <laughs> wasting her time, Ian? 
she's not. I mean, you, you need some of this time where you're doing nothing so you can feel it's, it's like a breather from the doing. Otherwise, you don't know what it means to do. You're just doing all the time. Mm. Uh, but you know, in our in our in our last episode, uh, we also talked about uh, what it means to rest. And rest doesn't mean sitting around necessarily. It's not like napping, although that's a part of it. You also, you know, hobbies, other kinds of activities, doing something that keeps you busy, but that is different from your work life or your family life or your chore life. That's an important way of resting as as well. So when you when you hear this drive to use you know less of your time productively, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should spend all of it or more even more of it uh, just sitting around. Take some naps, you know, do do get get a good night's sleep, relax in order that you can feel what it's like to be in your own head and be comfortable with that. But finding activities that are kind of off the books that are different from the rest of your life that can help too. Well, I mean, is that bed rotting, um, Becca? You, re- you, the concept of bed rotting shows up in the podcast, and I literally laughed out loud when I heard it. <laughs> tell, tell our listeners what that is. Uh, this self care trend on TikTok among teenagers, um, bed rotting is basically laying in bed all weekend and sort of passively scrolling on your phone, or um, whether it's sort of an active statement against being overworked or overly productive. It made me laugh, too, because I, I really admired the way that young people were sort of making leisure this thing that they deserve and not something that they need to be conditioned out of or, you know, the way that previous generations are maybe more conditioned into productivity or making the most of every minute. They're like, no, we're going to change the narrative on this. We can reclaim our leisure time because it's something we deserve. It's something that people are entitled to. And to what Ian was saying earlier, it reminds me that cultural influence is such a big part of this and why, you know, being present in the moment or using our leisure time in the way that we wish. I mean, even if you are having lunch with a coworker, both of you are sort of checking your phones and wanting to get back to the office, right? Or anything related to busyness or everything we've talked about, there's sort of the other person that you're dealing with and you're hoping that you both support each other in using your leisure time. But there are all of these ways that we're conditioned to make sure that we are busy and occupied. Well, Jane writes, all of the peak experiences of my life involve losing all sense of time. We've been talking about the New Atlantic podcast, How to Keep Time. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. It's something to put on your your playlist. Thanks, Becca, for being here. Thank you so much, Grace. And Ian, thank you. And thank you for shoving that lunch down. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking to Becca Rashid and Ian Bogos, the co-hosts of How to Keep Time. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in for Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.